Is investment something that's always been on your mind, but you don't quite know how to get started on that journey? We are here to set you on the right course. Welcome to My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We are all about getting out of the rat race through creating positive passive income through real estate investing. Here you'll hear from regular people just like you and the professionals who support us towards greater wealth. Learn before you earn, move from analysis to action, and find the right path to attaining the success that you've always dreamed of for yourself. Now, here's your host, Athena. Welcome, everyone, to uh, Investor's Corner, brought to you by Mortgage Bootcamp. Uh, my name is Athena Paquette-Cormier, and I'm your host and facilitator for these conversations. And we like to invite people who have been out of the rat race or uh, help us who get there. So in this case, Embert is, uh, Embert Madison Esquire is an attorney who specializes in real estate, but his subspecialty is uh, the cannabis industry. Um, a few years ago, I think in 2017, California, uh, um, Californians voted to make cannabis um, uh, legal, not only for medical purposes, but for recreational purposes. And that opened up a whole new world of investing. I personally funded a couple of loans for people who owned raw land, and we're going to use that for the cannabis growing and cannabis cultivation and production. Um, and those are different areas of cannabis the cannabis business but should you be uh, the landlord renting out your land to this industry or should you be in that industry yourself and so um, Embert is uh, an attorney who has done a lot of transaction uh, transactions in this area and is going to talk to us about um, the the legal pros and cons uh, one of my questions to him Obviously, should should we should we buy land and land bank it? Because uh, when they passed Prop 64, they said um, that for five years, the big guys, the big uh, tobacco industry, who obviously wants in on this business, um, they uh, they are prohibited from uh, from getting into the business for five years. So that's going to sunset. That five year say moratorium, we'll call it, is going to sunset in five years, which is 2022. And so my my question to him is does he foresee that uh, you know making the industry explode will the little guy get squished out if we are investors in real estate and we own land should we land bank it till that year and maybe those companies will will come in and buy our property or maybe they've already been gobbling up all the property that would qualify for the cannabis industry and I just want some kind of rudimentary um, kind of and nuts and bolts of you know how big should the land be does he know does he know what um uh you know what uh, jurisdictions or cities or counties are, are best for this and mostly in california if you're calling in if you're listening from another state i'm sure he can uh refer you to an attorney in another state that has that specialty um so hopefully embert is joining us soon i texted him to say we're ready oh he's running a few minutes behind he's coming in five minutes okay good so i'm not too good at this uh what do they call that on tv the <laughs> the um the stalling whatever they call it uh and uh so yeah if you have any questions in advance um those are kind of the questions i would were kind of burning in my my mind you know is as investors how how can we profit from this and be safe because the other issue is on a federal level this is still not legal so where do you put your profits? How do they pay you the rent? How does that money exchange happen if uh, the cannabis uh, industry as, a, as an industry is not legal on the uh, federal level, the sale of cannabis for recreational purposes? A lot of states have it still as medical, like how California started. Um, so this is not a political conversation so much. It's going to be a conversation about... Um, you know, the, the money part of it, the investing part of it. Um, let's see, what else notes did I have? Oh, I want to know the steps. You know, what does it take to get your land approved? Um, does it have to be rezoned? I'm assuming it has to be rezoned specifically to can cannabis or maybe the jurisdiction has a clause that says that that's okay without rezoning. So maybe the zoning stays agri agricultural. So that was another one of my uh 
questions. Um, and then since he's an attorney, I'm sure he knows about liability. So what's the liability of having a cannabis uh, production business on your land? So if you're the land owner, you're renting to them, uh, what is the, um, what, what's the uh, kind of liability for the, for the equipment and so on? Um, legal pitfalls. And then I want to ask him what his most interesting case was. So hopefully he'll share a good case with us. With us. Um, oh, also, how long does he suggest leases be for that? Or what has he seen as, as the typical lease length? Again, if we're the, we're the owner of the land and we want to rent to the cannabis company, um, and uh, does it take a license to do that? Uh, jurisdictions. So yeah, those are kind of, and then kind of what's going to happen in his opinion when the big moratorium for the, you know, when the big guys get into the game, how might things shift uh, or explode? Uh, should an investor buy a plan? Okay, so those are kind of my questions that I intend to ask. I usually don't share them in advance, but since we have time, I'm doing that. Um, and, oh, here, I've got a Q&A here. Oh, yes. So we are recording this, this call. So um, if you found me on Meetup, then uh, I'll put like a little message saying that the uh, video is available. Um, and then if you email me directly, uh, you can email uh, info at mycashflowacademy.com and I'll send it to you directly. Or usually within two days, I've got it. I've got the call edited and it's on our YouTube channel, which is My Cashflow Academy. Um, you know, you go to YouTube and type in My Cashflow Academy. Now, just be careful. There's uh, one of Mr. Kiyosaki's coaches has Cashflow Academy, which is about stocks, trade, trading stocks. So, um, so go to My Cashflow Academy. And, and actually, you can see all my previous uh, interviews like this. So, you know, feel free. If you need to drop off, don't worry. We're, you know, Zoom, it, it's, we record all our calls. So, so you'll be able to get a, a copy, no problem. So, and hopefully... I've never had a guest be this late. So um, let's see, what else could we talk about? Well, oh, I can tell you about our upcoming things. So um, Mr. Embert is going to, Embert Madison is also going to be back next week at one o'clock uh, to talk about Sacramento real estate because he is an attorney. Um, all attorneys automatically are brokers, real estate brokers uh, in the state of California, at least. And so he's going to talk about uh, the real estate industry, how it's going in Sacramento, but also his specialty. I mentioned earlier, he's a property manager and, a, and a, he's a broker. Um, his specialty is doing uh, short-term rentals, kind of VRBO, Airbnb style, short-term rentals, less than a year lease is called a short-term rental. And he does those for executives in the Sacramento area. And he's got 13 properties properties built up so far or his portfolio is 13 properties so far and so he's going to talk about next week talk about how he runs his uh, short-term rental business how does he target executives um, how is it different what kind of income do they make all that kind of stuff um, because I think that's an interesting uh, niche that that he has there um, next Wednesday uh, for women in investing, which is another subgroup that I have, uh, we I try to do weekly calls for women in investing. Uh, this past week was about women who boss lady, women who um, have built side side gigs or side shuffles that make them two to five thousand a month um, with very little money to start. So if you're, you're interested in that, that's actually up on our YouTube channel already. Uh, that was Thursday's call. Next Wednesday we're going to have a lady who. Um, was in, I've known this lady for 25 years, maybe a little over 25, since 1994. So would that be 27, 23? Oh, <laughs> math lady can't do math. Okay. So 26 years um, or so. And uh, so she was in an abusive relationship uh, in 1994. She filed for a divorce. She had to go into hiding for an entire year because he was after her. She had to let go of all her assets. She just said, fine, take it all, because he didn't want to give up any of the assets to keep control over her. And so she'll be, oh, Embert's joining us. So she'll be joining us to tell us her story about how she built enough cash flow to get out of the rat race uh, within 10 years. So in 2006, she could have said, I don't want to work anymore. Um, she had enough passive income to do that. So it's an amazing story. And she's our guest 
this coming Wednesday at 6 p.m. So if you're not part of Women in Investing, go check it out. And so I tried to, I did my best to, to talk while we were waiting for you, Amber. <laughs> oh, we can't hear you. Let me see. There you go. That's okay. And maybe talk a little bit so I can hear your sound level. How's this coming through? It's a little light, but it's good. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Thank okay. you. <laughs> yeah, my, well, no great. Problem. Finally, oh, our guest sure. is here. <laughs> so, um, shush. So you had a good workout. You're I home. Did. I, I did. love this I setting. I was on the Peloton. Uh, the problem with working out at home is that I didn't realize you just keep sweating. So I didn't want to hop on. <laughs> Still be sweating. Same here. It's pretty humid today. Right. So that's okay. I love the background though. It's really pretty. Oh, you're way up high, it looks like. Yeah. Um, well, I'm sitting in a high chair, so. <laughs> oh, no, but I see the tops of buildings, so that's pretty cool. Nice yeah. environment you got there. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. It's not real. It's a virtual background. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> that's funny. Okay, where are my notes? Okay, so. Welcome to, um, oh, and we have people joining us. So luckily, Lynn, I want to let you know you just joined us and we're just starting, so you didn't miss anything. Congrats. <laughs> um, so welcome to um, My Cashflow Academy's Investor's Corner. And this is um, uh, a new episode. And what we love to do is invite people who either have gotten out of the rat race through uh, passive income, whether it's from small businesses that they started, um, uh, real, mostly real estate for this, um, but anything that's mailbox money. And then also we love to hear from the people who help us attain that goal of being uh, financially free and uh, living off passive income. So I'm excited this week to have Embert Madison, who's a, an attorney who specializes in real estate, but a sub category we'll call it of the cannabis industry and so the last few years that's become come something that's been in the shadows and now is like in plain sight right when you've got a proposition and people voting to see if they want to make this a regular normal thing yeah definitely. it's something then right definitely yeah so uh embert is here in california in the sacramento area um he's also a real estate broker attorneys i think automatically right automatically are real estate brokers it used to be that way in 2013 they changed the law so oh. now, even if you're an attorney you have to practice as a real estate agent for at least two years. Oh, like us normal people have to. <laughs> yeah, they just waive all the educational requirements. Oh, okay. So things have changed. I got licensed in 1994, so I didn't really keep track, track anymore of that. But okay. And so a property manager and um, he has also a specialty in his investing that we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but yeah, so we would love to hear from Embert about what is... What is the opportunity as a real estate investor in the cannabis business? Is there certain like stuff we should be warned about that that should be steered away from? Kind of just the the nuts and bolts and the and the theoretical. Since you're an investor, Embert, I think you bring an extra edge to the idea. You, your brain thinks as an investor, so um, maybe your thoughts on the investment opportunities in the cannabis slash real estate business. So cannabis is, is a very unique industry. It's got some excellent opportunities, but it's also got some very real challenges, um, mm. particularly on the tax side because of this, the distinction between federal and state law. State law, we've passed Prop 64 in, what was that, 2017? It was effective 2018. Um, and concurrent with that, the legislature passed another law that basically mirrored what Prop 64 did for the adult use side. Mm. on the medicinal use side. So now we have a unified framework for medicinal and adult use cannabis, effective January 1, 2018 in California. But our federal government does not recognize cannabis as legal. So there's still a lot of issues that you have to work through. Some of the biggest ones right off the top are tax implications. The IRC code 2280E um, doesn't allow certain cannabis business, doesn't allow cannabis businesses, period to deduct anything from their tax returns except for cost of goods of cost of goods and services right so, so what are they missing out on what what would in a normal business let's say what else would there be to deduct your rent your utilities oh. your payment oh, wow. to employees all things like that that are just normal business costs that investors we all know love and take advantage of every april 15th 
Um, so when you're investing in the business itself, that's a real concern. Also with banking, it's really hard to get an FDIC insured bank account for the cannabis industry because of that federal distinction. Um, so what we find in California is that there are certain credit unions that will bank with the cannabis industry. It's extremely expensive. Um, so there's a lot of cash transactions still. Mm. So generally it's not unsafe because every cannabis business has security 24 seven that's tapped into the police department. It's just a hassle to go pay thousands of dollars of taxes to the state and local governments um, to go pay your employees through cashier's checks, things like that. So if you're going yeah. to invest in the cannabis space and a business that touches the flower, you have to understand those realities. A unique opportunity for cannabis investors also is owning real estate. You can also buy a building, even if it's a warehouse, lease that space out to a cannabis operator, let them take those risks and you reap the financial rewards, you know, traditionally as, you know, owning real estate. Mm. Interesting. So yeah, there's a lot packed in there. So why don't we kind of uh, break it down a little bit? So as an investor, you could either own the land and be the landlord to a cannabis business, <coughs> right? Correct. So how does that look like in, in your kind of experience? How does that look like? Do they sign real long leases? I mean, how does someone, do people target buying raw land and say here, like I got an email I don't even know how to get on these lists, but I guess because I'm an investor, I get this email, Lancaster, cannabis land, buy now before, da, 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 you know. So, so I guess you could buy the raw land, but they also need a, a building to produce. I mean, there's growers and there's the, the people that produce it, right? So can you break that down for us, what that would look like? Yeah, there's a lot of levels to this because there's a lot of regulations. So every cannabis business requires a state and local license. The local license is what's most important. Most local jurisdictions, when I say local, I'm talking about cities and counties, they prohibit cannabis. Right? There's only 600 and about 660 cannabis licenses in California right now. In the entire state, 660. Entire state. Wow. Right? We have 58 counties, so you can do the math and just by that, there's a lot of places in California where it's prohibited. So assuming you're in a municipality, for example, Sacramento, where it's generally legal, then you got to go to your zoning code and see where within the city is that zoning permitted for a cannabis space. So the property you may have been advertised, it's likely zoned or in a zone that's cannabis is allowed or permitted. So an investor could buy the land, erect the building, and then just do a triple net lease to that cannabis operator. They could do a ground lease with the cannabis operator and let them build and deal with all of that risk. You know, those are traditionally at least 30 year leases. So it really- No kidding, a 30 year lease. Well, a ground lease generally is a 30 year lease. So ground leases are traditionally used for businesses like let's say your CVS. They'll uh -huh. buy a corner lot. Uh, well, the, the developer buys the corner lot, CVS gets a ground lease, they erect the building and they promise to, run their business for 30 years on that space. And after 30 years, you know, they get the land back. Yeah, exactly. So that's what you're wow, lease, And it's, it's used in the cannabis space as well. I worked seeming a long time ago. It's only four years ago. I worked for a municipal law firm. And so I represented cities as they um, gave cannabis businesses, their licenses. You were on the city side. Exactly. So okay. I, was, I was the land use attorney. Um, so we would give cannabis developers a development agreement for between three and 10 years for them to, in some cases, take just raw land that was just agriculture. We zoned it so it was permitted for cannabis and they erected their building and they have, uh, for example, uh, distribution, indoor cultivation, and even retail space. In California, a lot of places don't allow outdoor cultivation, even though it's more economic it's economically friendly. Kind of like out in the open as opposed to in a building, you mean? Exactly. Okay. Huh. I, it's, I think because the cannabis space still has a lot of misconceptions about it, people think that because it's in a field, it's going to be more dangerous or it's more unsafe. Um, but it's better for the environment because you're not using um, a lot of electricity. The water's better. It's a natural way of producing the plant. But most of the of the cultivation in California is going to be indoors, which requires a lot of water. Mm. Got to treat that water. So there's a lot of discharge. It's a lot of electricity. So when you go, I, I toured a rather large cannabis uh, cultivation site in San Jose. 
uh, companies called Kaliba. In the, inside the city or outside the city? Inside the city. It's industrial. Really? Zones. A lot of these uh, zones are industrial because cannabis is still on the peripheral, right? A lot uh -huh. of people assume if there's a cannabis store, they're going to smell something or they're going to see something. I can tell you, I've been to dozens of cannabis operations. You could walk by and you won't smell anything. You so it's not like you can walk by, sniff it in, get drunk or whatever they call it. And so that's a misconception for sure. It's a right? misconception. So a lot of these, these properties are going to be in industrial zones. So underutilized, maybe even blighted properties. Like I have a client right now, they have a property that's been sitting vacant. It was falling down in the city of Atwater, right? It's near a railroad track. It was never going to be used for anything. And they demolished mm -hmm. it. They're going to put a 20,000 square, square, uh, 20, square foot building on that property. It's going to be state of the art with cameras. And it's sort of revitalizing an area that would otherwise huh. be quiet. Well, that's an, and Atwater is up by you somewhere, right? Near Sacramento somewhere? Atwater is about two hours south of Sacramento. So it's squarely in our Central Valley where we get a lot of okay. our grapes, almonds, walnuts, things like that. And is Central Valley kind of where most of those licenses are? Or do you see, I'm imagining San Diego in the kind of wine country-ish area. Maybe they have some, but. It, it's really fragmented. Humboldt County is really like the motherland of cannabis cultivation. Okay. So that is its own unique market. Sacramento has about 30 licenses. Um, when you get to the Bay Area, it really depends on the jurisdiction. So San Francisco, Oakland, and San Jose are pretty friendly. Um, the cities in between those, not so much. When you get to LA, LA is a huge market. There's a ton of licenses. There's a lot of black market activity that they're trying to crack down on. Um, but the Central Valley, it really depends because the politics there are a little more conservative. So I've spent a lot of time there in my practice, you know, on the city side and now on the business side, talking to people, getting them to understand what these businesses actually look like. Mm what the realities are. So Central Valley does have a number of cultivation and dispensaries, but not nearly enough. And when you're representing a client to say, get a piece of land in the farming area, do you find other farmers upset that they're coming in? Like if I were an almond grower, I'm already being attacked for using every last drop of water in the state, right? So, and now this new business is coming in and, and exacerbating the use of resources, I would think. And then I'd be worried about kind of what you said about the, the walking by and sniffing it. Like, is it going into the ground and getting, is the cannabis getting into my almonds or, you know what? I'm, I'm sure there's all these misconceptions with even the other farmers, right? There are, it's, it's crazy how much science goes into producing high quality cannabis. Um, it's, for example, when I talk about the Kaliva facility I went to, there are masters and PhD professionals who run these facilities. So mm -hmm. it's not a fly-by-night operation. Um, so it really depends on the sophistication of a farmer. For example, I know one gentleman who's in the um, Oakdale area of the Central Valley. He has a farm with acres and acres of, and of, of almonds. But because cannabis is less water intensive, it's less labor intensive, it's more predictable in how much income, and honestly, the income is higher, he's converted a large portion of his acreage to a cannabis facility. Oh, wow. So kind of like the grape growers do, they just rip out the, the grape that's not um, popular anymore. He just kind of ripped out all his stuff and put that yeah. in instead. So he's got um, greenhouses. So he didn't have to, it's not like he's choosing one or the other. Oh, he's, okay. He's redirecting resources. Um, because it's not outdoor cultivation. It is in a greenhouse. It's the air is filtered. So if you drove past, you would never smell anything. Um, he's got a distribution center attached to it. So as the product is cured and then packaged on, on ground, you know, then it gets sent to the ultimate retail location. So it's really in-house. It's really professional. And honestly, if I didn't tell you that there was a cannabis business there, you'd have no idea. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, oh, I just... It's slipping my mind now. Oh, so I was going to ask about, so in the production line, people are, are selling the cannabis oil, right? The CDBD oil. So is there a greater risk to um, a landlord in a, in a company that's doing that? Because they're, I'm imagining they're cooking it or they're, they're extracting the oil somehow. So is that a higher risk? Wh which part of the cannabis 
production or specialty has more risk to a real estate investor if they're the, your tenant, would you say? Um, that's a good question. I honestly, as long as they're, they have their state and local license, you are likely going to be fine. Obviously, this is not legal advice because I can't give legal advice, right. you know, to just to anybody. Yeah. Um, but it really depends on the situation. And I will say that in 2012, there was a large federal crackdown on even legal cannabis within the states. Um, under President Obama's administration, they took a hard stance at that point. But after that, they came out with something called the Cole Memo that outlined eight guidelines that if a cannabis business operated within these eight guidelines, the federal government would largely leave them alone, right? Huh. One of the guidelines of the eight were operate in, in compliance with state law, right? So although that memo has been taken back by the Trump administration and there's been other machinations, generally that principle holds true. So as long as the cannabis investor, whether they own the property or they're running the business, as long as they make sure that the operator itself that's touching the flower has a state and local license, they're likely going to be okay. Um, when you say the cannabis oil, that's an extraction method. Um, so that's going to be cannabis manufacturing in California. There's two license types. There's type six and type seven. One is volatile. One is non-volatile. Mm. Using the term volatile is a large misnomer because non-volatile just means they're taking the stems and the seeds and all the parts that are not the flower. And generally they're cold pressing it or putting pressure to get the, the oil, the essential oil out of what's left over. Right. Oh, interesting. So they're not cooking it up. They're pressing it. That's a non-volatile extraction. A volatile extraction normally uses some sort of gas, um, mm -hmm. ethanol or something like that, that could be combustible, but it's processed in a closed loop. Um, oh. um, um, it's a kind of like bourbon and stuff like that, where you see the tubes. Exactly. And okay. So it, it's not, nothing is ever going to if it's done correctly by professionals, there's no yeah. chance of it exploding, but because it's using a flammable gas, they call it volatile. Mm. Uh, so generally cities, just because of the term volatile, um, are hesitant to give out those licenses, but depending on the extraction process, that gives you a different end product, right? So whether mm -hmm. you're using cannabis, cannabis is, is, is interesting because it has a ton of chemical properties. One of them is THC. That's the common thing we think of that makes you get lightheaded or feel quote unquote high. Mm -hmm. The other chemical compound is CBD. CBD does not give you a high. And that's what is associated with a lot of the, the medical um, characteristics of cannabis. So depending on the flower and the, the flower that you start with will let you know what the chemical profile will be. So you can grow a flower that has mostly all CBD properties and you extract that, turn it into a cream, an oil, or even a flour, and you can consume that and never feel high. Huh. Or you can start with a flour that has a large THC profile, and it can give you certain characteristics that can give you that high feeling. Mm -hmm. So is there a minimum square footage of land that, that a cannabis business would need for growing? Like, do they need at least an acre, two acres? Do you have a feel for what they look for? much smaller. There's a micro business license, a type 10 license where you can have up to three of the cannabis license types. So you can have a retail establishment, you can have a distribution and you can have cultivation all within 10,000 square feet. So oh wow, that's a very popular license type because you can vertically integrate your business, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go outside for services, you can keep everything in house. I've seen retail establishments as small as 700 feet, 700 square feet. So wow. That's retail. Just the, for the retail part. But if exactly. you're growing it, do you need, so you're saying a 10,000 square foot space, you could have enough room to have enough uh, plants or whatever to, to have a decent business. Exactly. So exactly. I'm sure it's economies of scale too, right? You don't want this little thing and you have six, six plants and you're like, I'm in business. And I don't think so. Right. So exactly. So if you're trying to just be a cultivator, you're going to need a lot of square space, a lot of square, uh, square feet. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you're trying to run a vertically integrated business, you, you need less, right? Because you can grow the plants on top of each other. It's like a tiered system and they have like shelving, like they build them on shelf. 
it's on chill. Kind of. It's like you'll have a lower level and then you can have a higher level of plants at different stages in their development. Uh. You can really maximize the square footage, but the canopy space is much larger. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, so... Um... Okay, I asked about zoning. So there's not a particular zoning for cannabis, but there's a license for cannabis. Is that right? Or does the city have oh. to actually zone it for cannabis? They have to zone it. So part okay. of the city permitting cannabis is telling these businesses where they can go. And that's done through the zoning code. So generally, a city does two types of regulations. They do zoning regulations, and then they do business regulations. And what I've seen thus far in the industry is cities are zoning cannabis for industrial zones. There's a movement right now. I had a webinar on Wednesday with a council member from the city of San Jose and San Jose is thinking about bringing cannabis into retail zoning, right? Because if it's a retail business, why not put it in a retail zone? So uh-huh. we talk about it and we normalize the business. I think that's where the market's going to go. Interesting. Yeah. So I kind of assumed that it would be an agricultural zoning just because you're growing stuff, but it makes sense that you could have it in an industrial area too, because it's inside, right? I mean, I was thinking of fields, right? But yeah, okay. That makes sense. Um, Okay. And so because you're a, a municipal kind of zoning expert, what are the steps in general to, if, if, something is not zoned for cannabis, what are the steps someone would go through? Would they hire an attorney like you to take them through the step? I mean, it's, I would assume this is complicated and convincing uh, politicians that it would be like going in front of a city council or a zoning council or whatever might be too much for the layman. So what are the steps that you would take us through to get that zoning approved? The first step is to identify a jurisdiction that will allow the business. To me, that is the number one hardest part. Um, So when I was a municipal law attorney, I worked with nine cities and part of my job was to establish the framework in which the city would allow these businesses. And generally the city would limit how many businesses. So now if somebody came to me and say, hey, Ambert, I wanna go to X city that you worked in before and get a license, chances are there's no licenses because they've already been scooped up, right? San Jose has 16 retail businesses. That's all they'll allow right now. Oh, I see. So as new so you'd city- have to get them to break their own rule about how many they'll allow, right? Or just go find another place. Exactly. So for example, I know Fresno is working on allowing these cannabis businesses, right? So if I was interested in this space and I lived in Fresno or I had access to that, in- that area, I would start following the steps, seeing what the city is doing, where are they in the zoning process, where are they in the regulatory process. So yes, I would employ an attorney to follow along that process. Hopefully they're local enough that they have the relationships because it's really a relationship based. Mm -hmm. um, Because real estate is all relationship. We we all know that. And cannabis in the the land use context is, is the same thing. So that's where I would start, find a jurisdiction where it is allowable. And then from there, you need to make sure your business plan will fit in what the city is going to allow. Mm, Right. So if they're just in the process of of making uh, making their regulations or figuring out what their policy is going to be, you might be too soon to the game. So that's where the attorney could follow along uh, the steps of of the city actually formulating what they're going to accept and what they won't accept, right? Exactly. What I would recommend um, for somebody in this situation, for example, if it was Fresno, for example, I don't work in Fresno. I don't have any affiliation to Fresno. I'm just using it as an example. I would hire somebody who's local and have them attend to all of the city council or planning commission meetings on that client's behalf. So the city knows you're an interested stakeholder, you're professional, So when the city does open up, generally it's a competitive process. Mm. You're going to know what the process is. You're going to know the people involved and hopefully you can put forth a good application and thereby be selected. Right. And, and your attorney or representative would all be already be known to the people who are making those decisions and politicians want the first ones they approve to be successful or else it ruins it for everybody. Right. So. Exactly. And cities that are more mature that, open up because there are some cities that say hey there can be as many businesses as zoning will allow i know one city for example like that the problem is that it may not be the most enticing location in which to operate a business right Mm. so if it's a city like that for example you can just go there set up shop 
Um, but you're going to have to deal with those business challenges, whether it's there's no infrastructure. So you're oh, going yeah. to bring in the plumbing, the sewer, build a road and all that kind of good stuff. Uh-huh. Have you ever had a client want to, to use um, the earth for cannabis or this site for cannabis and it already had some kind of environmental problem? Because I would think these plots of lands that are in industrial areas might have, you know, you know, oil spills or, you know, stuff underground. Maybe it used to be a tank farm. Like I could so easily see that, right? Have you ever seen something like that where they, they just couldn't use the land because of that or? I have never seen that they couldn't use the land because remember the, the if you're going to run a business, it's going to be within a building nine times out of 10 in my, in my experience. Right. Mm-hmm. So I have a client, the building that they were going to use, I forgot what it used to be used for. It was some sort of manufacturing plant from like the 1920s. Mm. So of course there are environmental issues, but since right. they're basically rebuilding it, you know, it's going to be up to current code. And part how I would advise any clients, part of if you're buying something to develop, you have to do a phase one assessment right? at the very least to know what's going on. And then you generally you can mitigate um, unless it's, it's a nuclear power plant. There's no mitigation. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you definitely want to do your due diligence. And that's where having an experienced land use attorney comes into play. Mm-hmm. So what are the steps of due diligence in this particular? Um, is it the same as any or what due diligence do you do you say are like a must in this industry? I know from a lending perspective, yeah, we're going to want a phase one if it's a industrial manufacturer. I mean, automatically. Right. But right. But what are the due diligence things that are maybe different in the cannabis area than say in a, say in a multifamily apartment building, right? I would say it's different because of the use. In general, cannabis is the same as any other business other than the the layered regulatory problems with running a cannabis business, right? So from a real estate perspective, it's it's really the same thing. So if you're going to buy an industrial, in an industrial space, you're going to do the normal things you would do for due diligence on an industrial property. If you're getting a commercial space, like let's say you want to operate a retail location, you're going to do those same things. Is it it ADA accessible? Um, Are there bathrooms? All those good things you're you're going to have to do. Mm. And then layer on top of that, well, what are the cannabis regulations? So where do I have to put my cameras? Where's my security card? What kind of, the one thing I will say that is different, you should do some community outreach when you locate a property. Um, I've found the most success with my clients who are proactive and going out and meeting the, the nearby property owners, all of them, mm-hmm. as many times as they can. To let and them- how does that look? Do you go one by one and say, hey, I'm about to ruin your neighborhood? <laughs> 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 I mean, <laughs> you know, what, what do you recommend? Do you, like some people who recommend having a town hall meeting and that, uh, like builders do that a lot, right? Oh, yeah. here's our plan. Look at the little pretty picture we brought, you know, but it doesn't. I don't think that works that well. Um, And I'm thinking this is another layer of scariness, right? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend the town hall type situation unless it was part of a city sponsored Mm. situation. So I've coordinated those sort of workshops for the community just to let them know what the city is thinking and what the business is. That's a, it depends on the people, generally the people who go to those kind of things are the people that are against it anyways. Right. if you're going to do one privately, I would not recommend that. What I recommend is that you literally just go to the business owners next door, introduce yourself. Because what I found is that most of these business owners, they're regular people. They have some, either they've used the product for health benefits or they've been around it for whatever reason, while it was illegal and now it's legal, they want to turn it into a real business. And once you sit down with somebody face to face and they realize like, you're not some drug lord or you're not going to ruin the neighborhood. Right. You're going to follow regulations. You yeah. have fans that are going to filter the smells. I'm going to have security here. We're going to have cameras. So if you ever have questions or even if, Hey, if somebody, you know, breaks into your location, maybe my camera picks that up. Here's my number. Right. Give me a call, you know, and you've got security right. there, which they never had before. Right. Exactly. Cause that's expensive. Tell me what, what does it take to do that security part of this? Like this whole, like, I had one person tell me, yeah, they've got, they've got a bunker underneath the property. They've got like a, a basement where all the money goes and they've got security. All, there's the gate all the way around. There's security. There's cameras. I mean, it sounds pretty intense, right? Which I guess it has to be. If people find out that you've, that's what you're doing there, they might want to steal it, right? 
Especially the money part sounds real scary to have money going in and out in dollar bills or whatever. It is. I think what's interesting is that these businesses are so scrutinized that their level of professionalism has to be top notch. Mm. Right. So the security companies that I've seen in in the industry, they are more expensive, but generally the proprietors are ex-police, ex-military. They charge a very high price, but you get a very good service. Right. A lot of these businesses have armed security guards 24 seven. Right. So is somebody really going to go break into a building through an armed security guard, try to find a safe that's bolted to the ground, figure out a way to drag that away while there's 24 hour cameras patched through to the police department right it's unlikely right but once that's explained to people they kind of the the anxiety level drops right so there's a lot of rules as far as the the security measures because by statute the 24-hour surveillance thing that's by statute so certain Mm -hmm. things that just have to be there like where you place the vaults in your location generally the you work with the police department when you're getting your conditions of approval Oh, interesting. They're going to tell you where to put it, right? The police department and the fire department are working hand in hand with the business operator to say, this is where we feel safe. This is where we think this should go. So when our guys come in, we know where everything is. Oh, that's so, so interesting. So it's actually full cooperation with the police and the fire. Definitely. Because the thing about these businesses is that once you allow them in, the revenue that is collected by the local jurisdictions can then go fight the illegal things right yeah when you search if you just did a google search of illegal cannabis grows you'll find that they're generally large organized operations and they use a lot of electricity it's a lot of coordination involved and our police departments just don't have the resources to sniff these guys out all the time because they're doing things that they do on a regular basis Right. right so once these businesses come in and there's another source of income for the local jurisdiction they generally hire a new officer or two. There's new admin people and it helps them regulate the illegal market. That's so interesting. So allowing these guys to be legitimate businesses are funding the, a resource to get rid of the illegitimate or the more dangerous ones or whatever. Definitely. And right now what we're seeing in California is that just the black market is, it's, it's, it's not going away right now because Mm -hmm. we have so much prohibition, right? So if you're Mm -hmm. in a jurisdiction, let's say it's legal in San Francisco, but you live in, I don't know, San Mateo, right? What's stopping a guy from growing something in his backyard, selling it to his friends because he knows they can't get it there easily, right? It can be delivered, but it's going to take forever. And the more it becomes, you know, regulated, the less likely somebody's going to be like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm going to buy it from my friend. Actually, I'm going to go to the store around the corner. They have this product I've liked and I've used many times. I'm going to buy it there. Right. So you were saying LA has a really black market, right? So why, why, why is that? In part, it's just the, the demographics of Los Angeles. It's a really large area. So there's more yeah. people, more opportunity. Um, also, cannabis isn't new. You know, people have been using cannabis. I mean, there's a reason why it was called marijuana. Originally, that term was a derogatory term derived for the plant that's actually called the cannabis plant. Used, oh. It was a derogatory term because Mexican settlers were growing the plant. And they oh. wanted to find a way to use a term to talk down upon it, right? So it's got a long history. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, it, it's funny the things I've learned in this industry, things I would <laughs> never thought to learn, right? So it's just got a long history. And in Los Angeles, there's so many people, there's so much opportunity, and there's not enough licenses. It's right. very bureaucratic, as it is everywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. So where there's opportunity, you know, there's going to be a market. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it sounds like you can get higher rents from these businesses because it's a lucrative business, Right. And they're already spending a lot on everything else. So um, is there a price per square foot or what's your experience with, with how much rent they get for, I mean, a 30 year lease sounds wonderful. I'm assuming there's step ups just like a regular commercial lease. There's step ups in the rent. Um, But what kind, do you have a comparison of a a commercial building that would have, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, home home goods being stored versus giving it to this bit is it a triple is it three times more rent four times more rent do you have an idea i have an idea but it's not really apples to apples because generally they're in 
they're in properties that were otherwise unused or oh. underused, right? So right. a landlord who's owned, let's say, an empty warehouse or a warehouse that is underused for 10, 20 years, right? And then now it's zoned cannabis because the city wants it on the peripheral. So, hey, now that guy is going to charge 30 to 40 to even 50 times what he normally would charge for the uh-huh. cannabis space. And the cannabis operator is going to do all the improvements, right? So yeah. that generally what you see is that it's going to be in spaces that are underutilized or not utilized at all. So mm-hmm. it, it, it really depends. If it's something high end, like a MedMen in Los Angeles, I, I honestly wouldn't know because I haven't worked on too many deals that are in prime locations. I'm thinking of uh, the MedMen location. Um, so Angeles. yours are mostly on the outskirts, right? The de- the deals or contracts that you put together mostly in those outskirts yes. or undesirable areas. Yeah, it's generally going to be industrial, right? Okay. And I don't think industrial is undesirable because there's a lot of industrial yeah. uses that we need every day, but we put those buildings on the outskirts of cities so trucks have access and it's not, you know, right. clogging up our our main arteries. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I really hope as the, the industry becomes more mainstream that we have retail establishments that are more in the downtown area because it can promote more walking, it can promote responsible consumption, it can promote, you know, a normalization of an industry that's not going away, whether it's illegal or illegal, legal or illegal. Right. Okay. Uh, so I asked you that. Um... Yeah. So as far as the income, so you kind of touched on this earlier. So you can't really put it in an FDIC insured bank, right? You can't just put cash. I mean, they'll be reporting you on a SARS report every day if you did that. So, you know, so um, it's the bad list sort of guys. Okay. So, um, so you said that people aim for credit unions that are friendly to the cannabis industry, but for us as landlords, how do we get paid our rent? Are they also, cause we're going to have the same problem possibly. So let's say the rent is 10,000 a month. Are they going to give us 10,000 in bills or, and how do we deposit it as a cashier? We're going to have to get a credit union too. I mean, well, generally being- it would be a cashier's check. Um, you know, so the operator will be required to get a cashier's check. Some have banking, you know, there's banks in Washington um, that I know I have a client that uses a bank in Washington. It's just the rate they charge is really expensive. So the cannabis operators will find a way to pay the vendors that require, you know, cashier's checks or banking. But if it's a vendor that does not require that, like, let's say they're paying their security, they're going to pay them in cash or a cashier's check. That's much easier. Um, so if you're a landlord, for example, I helped a landlord, I want to say three months ago, um, he owned a very large um, industrial space in San Leandro and a cannabis business, very well-known cannabis brand came in and they rented the whole space, right? So his loan, he had an SBA loan on the property because he used the property 10 years ago. Oh, and so we had right. him out of that <laughs> loan, right? Exactly. So we found him a hard money lender to lend him. It's a, I think it was like that's a, mostly what I have to do is get people hard money, which is personal people or um, and the, and the funds, not not federally insured banks are doing this, right? Exactly. So the rates then ten percent, and the lender knows because once the lender gets to the estoppel, they know it's cannabis business, right? Um, so that really shouldn't be an issue so long as the, the tenant is paying in a cashier's check, right? Okay, right. So we're depositing a cashier's check, so that's traceable. So we, we don't, as a landlord, have a problem with receiving that money. Correct. Because I don't want to be on SARS reports, you know. <laughs> Nobody does. <laughs> okay, and um, so Eileen had a question. Hopefully I'm saying her name right, but Eileen had a question about, um, do you, do you do business in Washington state or do you know an attorney who does is familiar with this in Washington state? Unfortunately, I don't off the top of my head. If she, um, reached out to me, just Google my name and you'll find my email address to my, mm-hmm. my we'll get it to you at the end of this. We'll, we'll get your, yeah, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but we have a network of attorneys that we work with in different states so I can find somebody that I or a couple people that I can give her his names to talk to mm-hmm. but I'm only licensed in California so mm-hmm. this is here yeah Washington state I think has a, a robust uh cannabis business right there a little yeah. more ahead of the curve on this yeah they're a couple years ahead of us uh-huh 
Okay. So uh, they had this moratorium in, in uh, Prop 64 that said the little guys get a chance at it and then they're going to allow the big tobacco people, bigger companies come in. Um, mm -hmm. Do you still see that when, when that sunsets? Do you, how do you predict this could change? Cause that's only a couple of years. Let's see, 2018 plus five. So 2023, I guess the uh, big guys are going to be let into the, to our California business, right? Yeah, it's the cannabis space is just really dynamic and it's always changing. So I would say a year and a half ago, there was a ton of M&A action, right? So the people that I helped get licenses on the city side, so the guys that I kept seeing in all my cities got their licenses, they would get letters literally every day from large investors to try to buy their licenses. So there was right. a ton of M&A action. But what they saw in the last year and a half is that the revenue didn't keep pace for the price that they were paying for these businesses, in large part because of the tax issues. And, you know, you make a high net profit, but because you can't deduct anything, your expenses are high. So there was a ton well, of- Well, your taxes are high, right? Exactly. So, okay, that's a good question. Is the federal government willing to take these people's tax money? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. No <laughs> they frown upon the business, but they say, you know, Uncle Sam will take the money. Uncle Sam will always take their money. There's certain uh, IRC code provisions that relate to illegal businesses because this is not the first time the feds have had to deal with illegal business. And yes. Um, but yeah, what I, what I think is that since M&A has slowed down, it's really now is the time for the independent operator to really grow their business and grow their brand. Because mm. I was really excited about cannabis because it was an opportunity to grow small businesses. And as a person of color, as somebody that comes from not, you know, meager means, you know, small business is the engine in our communities that make them the places we want to be in. Mm. And I thought that cannabis could be another industry in our communities that we can be proud of. Mm. But that all that M&A action that I saw, it kind of disheartened me. Um, so oh, yeah. it slowed down, I'm really hoping that businesses really figure out ways to maximize how the governor's proclamation that cannabis is essential so they can run their businesses now, earn a decent profit and mm. stay away from the, the M&A action. Because what was happening is that businesses here would go in the Canadian exchange, go public, raise a lot of public capital, come back to the states with that capital and then buy up licenses in different states. Mm. Yeah. So, so you're, you're hoping that it stays small, that it stays within the hands of small uh, business. I mean, to give yeah. people a, a, a perspective, there's small almond growers, right? But when the blue dime is a blue diamond, that's like one of the biggest yeah. nut producing companies or whatever, they come in and they'll squash all those guys and then they have too much power, right? So exactly. it's kind of a similar idea. It's just, we've got maybe it's just me, but the block of it's a drug, right? I mean, that's, you know, um, but if you take that away, you see it as, a, I think what you're saying is brilliant that it's a small business. And if you allow these big guys to come in, the very thing that you were hoping it would do to help your community is going to be gone, right? Exactly. Because most of my clients, there are people that grew up in the communities where they're operating and they grew up, you know, selling weed to their friends and their families, right? And they saw this opportunity and they tried to become legit. They tried to be legal. They're trying to play within the bounds that society is providing for them. Mm -hmm. Why don't we encourage that, right? That's the kind of activity that we want. Right. So they were already in the business. They're just now legitimate. And yeah, that always, that, that always helps the community, right? When you're not hiding what you do or you're not you know, yeah. I've seen a lot of, it's funny, a lot of real estate brokers, former brokers or former uh, agents get into the business because they understand the land use part. They understand the real estate part, the cannabis part. You can generally hire somebody and it's really running a business. Uh -huh. um, so I've seen a lot of that happen too. So how, that's a great, that's actually a great question. How does someone, I mean, now I just feel like I would call you, but how, how would, some, how would someone ever meet a cannabis business person like you own this property you think yeah that would be a great use we have some areas in fact pamela's on the call now there's areas in like the gardena la strip border where there's a lot of industrial property that just sits vacant looks blighted you know so if you're someone who is not like 
your bread, the bread company is no longer your tenant, hasn't been in 20 years, you can't find a tenant. How would someone who owns a building like that come in contact with, say, um, you know, a cannabis business that might want to use that property? How, how would someone, how would these people get connected? I think in general, you want to follow what your city council and your planning commission are doing. So if the city is talking about allowing these businesses, you want to make your voice known that, hey, in your area, you're okay with it. You are a property owner. You show up to that planning commission meeting and you say, hey, I know this is new and the city's talking about it. We would welcome it where we are. If it's already been permitted, I think you would... Google can do a lot for you, right? If, if, if you own property that is, we call it like the green zone, that is green zone. Green I would, zone for cannabis? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's okay. what I mean. Uh, <laughs> like green zone. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if it's zoned in an area that can be a cannabis business, I would contact somebody like me in your local community who has contacts and promote it. There's certain, I don't want to give away the websites, but there's certain websites you can post your property on oh, okay lit serves you can be on and once you're oh, okay. in the industry it's not that big of an industry that word will get around oh, okay i'm sure you'll find or it they'll out. find you kind of yeah okay yeah okay so but you gotta okay. do a little homework to make sure where your property is is zoned accordingly because it all starts with the zoning mm-hmm. well this reminds me of when the the uh, micro brews were trying to get in right my, I mean, people were in uproar about that too. Oh no, there'll be drunk people on the street all the time. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. now they've got bus tours to take you to the microbrews and actually Torrance has 11 or 12 of them and, and our licenses went so fast. So I don't know how the city council feels about cannabis, but um, yeah, I guess to your point, you want to know your politicians and how they feel about anything that you're thinking of doing, right? Yeah, definitely. One of the best things that I learned, because before becoming a land use attorney, I didn't really take part in my local government process. Mm -hmm. One of the best things I've learned is that it's not boring. It's actually fun. You can learn a lot and you can actually have- You mean the city council meetings? Planning commission. Planning commission. Yeah, they're super fun. (laughs) It's so entertaining. It is interesting. But you learn so much about your community and the more, especially if you're a property owner, you have to have your ear to what's happening at City Hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people wake up one morning and go, when did that building go? <laughs> you know, where did that come from? Well, if they'd been following, they, it wouldn't have been a surprise that a building went up where they don't want it to be or whatever. Exactly. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um, let's see. So, um, so can you remind us what are the kind of the legal pitfalls? What are the kind of the, the red flags or the legal pitfalls? What are your kind of warnings to us as real estate investors about um, getting into this business? First things first, everything takes longer than you think, right? You're dealing with, <laughs> right? You're, you're dealing Man, with you're a downer. <laughs> now well, that we're yeah. interested, we want it tomorrow, right? Exactly. And that to me is, that is one life lesson that even goes outside of cannabis in the real estate context. Because if you've got to get a permit, right, you got to go to a planning commission, you got to go to two city council meetings, and that just takes time. Mm. Uh, so everything takes longer than you think. So make sure you're well capitalized. Make sure you have proper counsel, whether it's a consultant, whether it's an attorney that has the heart of a teacher and can explain to you why these things are happening and not just mm. tell you X, Y, and Z is happening. Um, and then from there, once you find a business that you want to allow in your property or you want to, to start a business, you really got to have trusted partners. Um, so what we're seeing now in the industry is now there's a business been operating. There's going to be just a general business con- conflicts, right? So partners arguing with each other. You want to make sure you're getting into business with people that you want to be married to because that's really mm. what it is. So those yeah. are the three things I would, I would recommend. Mm. So do you have uh, your most interesting case? I always like to ask attorneys, what's a case that stands out in your mind as your most interesting uh, case that you worked on, person that you, uh, you know, without saying names, person that you helped or group, um, just your most, in, or the thing that you learned the most out of? That's a really interesting question um, because 
I mean, largely what I do is not glamorous. I sit at a desk and I read and I write and I call people. <laughs> you know? yes. so I generally think it's that interesting. Um, I'm trying to think. But sometimes you go into something thinking it's going to be easy and you find obstacles you never planned on. And, and to me, attorneys and, and real estate, we're like puzzle solvers. Do you know what I mean? We take a situation, we go, how? I'm always like, how could I make it work? You know, someone tells me that's not going to work. I'm like, yeah, but how could we make it work? Right. So I'm sure as an attorney, and you're, you seem very creative. So were there, was there a case where you really had to think outside the box to help someone? I would say, yeah, it's always thinking outside of the box, especially in that land use context. Um, I'm trying to think particularly in the cannabis context. I, I will say that there was a city I worked with in 2017. They were completely against cannabis, right? But then they had a budget shortfall. And then all <laughs> of a sudden they were pro-cannabis. So in October of 2017, it was a whirlwind because I was interviewing cannabis businesses. I was writing cannabis um, regulations on a local level, trying to project what the what the state was going to do January 1, 2018 because yeah, we were all wondering and I and I had to negotiate once we figured out the businesses I had to negotiate six development agreements so wow. right so negotiating them drafting them heading to all these city council and planning commission meetings we had so many people that would come to the meetings and just scream bloody murder that this was tearing down their cities and what yeah you were ruining their neighborhood yeah, and it's just- Or helping the, to ruin it. <laughs> exactly, and I'm going to hell, or yeah. like, this is our, and it's, I, it's just the comments you get from people that you just wouldn't expect. But I would think the thing that's most surprising to me is how much support you get from people hmm. when you're in their community and they come talk to you and they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing. And it's people, you know, I work in an office every day. I may not ever come into contact with. They're farmers, they're hair salons. Yeah. You know, it is like, to me, that's the most rewarding thing about my job is that I meet all kinds of people yeah. and I get all kinds of experiences from them and they're really enriching my life. Mm -hmm. That is super cool. That is so. super cool. Well, good. So um, I'm just going to see if anyone else has questions. I think we've answered. Oh, hang on. There's two in the chat. I was only looking at the other thing. Uh, oh, so Eileen says, great to your land think you're uh washington state she's calling in from seattle so that's why she she lives in seattle or yeah. calling in from seattle um and then pam says land use restrictions may not allow cannabis use especially if near sensitive land uses yeah so that's what we were talking about is just to make sure you know what they'll allow what they won't maybe even the history pamela is uh, very involved in local government so she, she and uh, is kind of a land use expert herself. So that's a good warning. And yeah, we, we talked about make sure you know where, where they are in the curve and, and what their attitude is towards it. And then to Pam's point, what's next door? Because you might be thinking that building is excellent, but everything around it will just be an uphill battle, right? Definitely. If The general rule is if you're within 600 feet of a school, church, or daycare, it's mm -hmm. not Mm -hmm. Oh, that's a good tip. Thank you. Okay, good. Well, this has been really a great conversation. I'm so glad you joined us, Ember. It's just like people have been asking this. And my first experience was getting the hard money loan for the lady didn't tell me till two weeks in. I mean, I just saw this empty land. There was a building. I start getting the money together, calling, negotiating, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden she says, it's not a problem that my tenant's a cannabis company. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah right you know so that was actually that was 2017 18 so yeah i told her let's wait till the beginning of 2018 to fund this loan <laughs> right what kind of rates do you think somebody can get <clears throat> right well, you now? know there's a lot of down downward pressure on even um even the hard money loans are like 7.99 now so Wow. Uh, much better than they were in 18 in 18 i think i got her 12 then i found i funded her loan because she was about to lose her, her first hard money loan was uh, being called the person didn't want to extend it and so um i had to get her an emergency loan and then like her loan was uh, expiring in april and i got it funded in january but you know when you think you're, you're going to lose your property that's a little too yeah. close for comfort right so 
Um, so then I got from 12, I got her after she had six months of seasoning, we got her alone at like seven or 8% from one of my people, one of my uh, accredited investors that just said, you know what, I believe in this. I'll, I'll, you know, took a lower rate just because he felt it was, he wanted to support her. So nice. nice. Yeah. Yeah. So, but regular hard money is right around 7.9, 8.9, depending, you know. Oh, wow. That's, that's really yeah. good. Yeah. Which is really cool. Very cool. Um, Okay, so if there's no other questions, I guess we'll uh, uh, call it a day. Um, Ember, we're going to have you back to talk about your real estate practice, which I'm super excited to talk to you. Are you coming back next week? I don't think we confirmed, have, so. We haven't confirmed, but let's talk offline. Okay, okay, so soon I'll announce it when Ember will be back uh, to talk about actually his real estate brokerage practice and his niche market that he's been working with. And Pam says, great Zoom call. So thank you, Ember. Um, and uh, I'll let you guys know when, when, when we confirm, but thank you all for coming. Thank you, Ember, for sharing your uh, expertise. This has been so enlightening for me, hopefully for others as well. And uh, now we can at least... Uh, go with confidence and go with caution into Definitely. being real estate investors in the cannabis space. <laughs> so thank I you. Thank you so much. And everybody will see you at the next session of investors corner. Bye bye now. Bye. bye. This has been another episode of my Cashflow Academy's investors corner with your host, Athena Paquette Cornier. We wish you all the success you deserve as you use what you've learned here out in the real world. Check out the blog post for this episode, along with many more helpful resources at mycashflowacademy.com.